Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. In these days, where climate change and similar topics are part of our everyday discussion, we don't automatically consider possible issues with filmmaking. Today I'll be speaking with Hunter Vaughn about his book, Hollywood's Dirtiest Secret, The Hidden Environmental Cost of the Movies. The book was published in 2019 by Columbia University Press. Hunter uses his experience studying the environment to review the hidden ecological consequences of famous films. Using four major blockbusters as examples, he discusses a variety of reasons for this continued serious problem. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Hunter Vaughn. Hi, Hunter. Uh, Hi, Joel. Thanks for joining me. It's you and I actually contacted each other earlier in the summer, and for a variety of reasons, things got held off. But we finally have had a chance to talk to each other. Um, and this is about your book, Hollywood's Dirtiest Secret, The Hidden Environmental Costs of the Movies. Um, so I, I heard about this book a while back, but uh, finally got a chance to talk to you. So I'm great to uh, speak with you. Yeah, no, I really appreciate your uh, your having me on the podcast. Uh, I like pretty much any opportunity to talk about the topic, and uh, have have definitely been trying to reach a much wider audience with this book than than the typical academic publication. So, any opportunity I, uh, opportunity I have to to give visibility to this topic, I'm 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 happy to take. So I appreciate it. So let's talk a little bit about your background because um, as the title of the book indicates um this is a topic that uh sort of combines two of your interests and so therefore it seems very uh apt that you wrote about it although um i suspect this is something you've been looking at for a long long time so let's talk about a little bit about your background and and what brought you to a project such as this um, yeah, sounds good. Uh, I, I've always been, um, I guess, focused on, interested in uh, writing on, teaching about uh, intersections between visual culture and uh, social justice uh, and, and ethics. Um, and my background is, is very much bridging uh, the humanity, humanities and film and media studies but uh, was not necessarily from an environmental angle. Um, it was more from a philosophical and an ethics standpoint. Um, but I was raised right by the Chattahoochee River, um, basically grew up in a, in a park, in a nature park, um, and have always been very, very passionate and interested in the natural world. Um, but it was not until uh, late in my PhD uh, that I got, that I sort of put the two together. Um, I actually, uh, the writing up, uh, finishing my dissertation in Oxford, I stumbled upon a, a film shoot for the Golden Compass in one of the colleges, uh, and it was just like radiating this crazy um, electric light 
And so I went in quite curious. And I, I, I did my undergrad uh, at USC and worked a bit at 20th Century Fox. And so I wasn't completely like a uh, bowled over by the glamorous notion of a, of a film shoot, but I was overwhelmed by the amazing amount of resources being used, the artificiality of the scaffolding, uh, scaffolding and lighting, um, the hum of the generators, the endless electric cables and things like that. Um, and it was then really that I, I realized that some of my work on film and philosophy existed in a bit of, of an ivory tower um, and was, was highly theoretical and, and conceptual. Um, and that I actually wanted it to be more connected to uh, to a sort of praxis of, of social issues and environmental issues. Um, and so then I started working on this relationship between media and the environment, which has been a, a growing field over the past 10 or 15 years that I am uh, very excited to have been uh, a part of. Uh, I, helped us, I helped start... Uh, with uh, Janet Walker, a scholarly interest group at the Society for Cinema and Media Studies, which is the largest international film and media um, academic association. Um, and so we started a, a group on media and the environment, which sort of expanded and took off. Um, and I just recently started uh, with my partner, uh, Meryl Shriver Rice, a new journal with Intellect Books called uh, the Journal of Environmental Media, uh, which aims to bridge environmental humanities, environmental communication, social sciences, uh, all around issues of environmental messaging, materiality, and, and justice. So um, yeah, I would say that you know, from, from a childhood uh, spent outdoors uh, to an academic career focusing on the ethics and larger ramifications of film and media culture, um, it, it sort of made sense for it all to lead up to this uh, intersection uh, between between the two. And as we see, you know, I mentioned before, it's it, it's seemingly fitting to ha do this this podcast interview for uh, on the the day of the big global climate strike. Um, issues of climate change, environmental injustice; uh, these are going to be the pressing matters of the, the 21st century, a century in which we increasingly use digital devices, screen devices to, to interact with each other, to interact with the world and to shape perceptions uh, of the environment and understandings and treatments uh, and activism surrounding the environment. So I think it's a, you know, it's the, the two major defining paradigms of, of our time. And um, obviously, you're also teaching. Um, the book obviously is a little out of date from your career because you just moved to uh, Colorado. Yes. Uh, what happened? I mean, what uh, led you to uh, a new role there? Um, I, I, I started my my academic career as um, in a in a cinema studies program that was part of an English department. Um, that had a pretty traditional but a, a strong um, humanities connection to, to visual studies. Um, I went on a, a sabbatical and helped uh, my partner, who had just started a new master's program in environment, culture, and media at the University of Miami uh, at their Abbas Center for Ecosystem Science and Policy. So it's very, very much geared towards environmental studies. Um, and I had the opportunity to sort of branch out a bit more into real interdisciplinary work um, uh, and, and new methods. 
connecting visual studies or cultural history and um, film and media to, to environmental studies, anthropology, uh, communication, stuff like that. Um, and then this, this position popped up at the University of Colorado and Boulder uh, and the university itself really just couldn't be a more perfect spot to look at this intersection. It is uh, the, the highest concentration of environmental studies, PhDs, I believe in the world. Um, and it has a, a thriving um, new college of media communication and information um, that's really progressive in its approach to, you know, what uh, innovative um, ways of looking at media and communication and how they, they shape our world. Uh, and they have a just a great just sort of slew of environmental studies, environmental media, environmental communication scholars and experts on campus, but also the surrounding areas is, is really strong in its commitment to the environmental movement. There are a lot of environmental filmmakers uh, that live here, things like that. So I just started a few weeks ago and already I'm just sort of my, my, my day planner is filled beyond the point of, of being able to write in it with people to collaborate with and possible initiatives and things like that. It's very exciting. Well, that's great. Then, obviously, I could imagine um, that uh, a move like that would you would want to do it if it uh, assists you in continuing on with what you've uh, made your career. Um, before we actually get into the book and more, I also wanted to point out that you were a Rachel Carson Center Fellow in 2017, which I think is is apt for this discussion. What was uh, what was that like? So that was actually uh, an application um, with a group uh, with Janet Walker, uh, Jim Swatch, and Adrian Ivakov, um, who that grew out of the SCMS Media and the Environment SIG, uh, and we had got the got the fellowship to develop a journal in the field, um, and we invited in some outside scholars uh, from the U.S. and and the U.K. and Europe. Um, who who joined us and it actually ended up uh, dividing into two journals that happened. Uh, one is uh, our journal, the one that Marilyn and I started, uh, the Journal of Environmental Media, and the other being Media Plus Environment, which Janet and, and Adrian and Alinda Chang um, are are running out of uh, UC Santa Barbara. And the, the Carsey Wolf Center there, I think, is helping to support that. And that's through University of California uh, Press uh, and is an online open access journal. So we sort of took different routes in terms of the format, uh, but also very different routes in terms of, I think, what we envisioned uh, this this field to be or the possibilities to of the journal to be. Um, but it was an amazing opportunity. The, the Rachel Carson Center is just just great and supporting scholarship and collaboration um, uh, across these fields. Uh, so that was great. And that basically helped to, to sharpen these visions uh, for these journals and uh, ultimately, you know, led to two for the field. That's great. So let's get into the book more. Sure. Uh, now that we've got a lot of background information, and like I said before, it's clear that one of the great things these days about studies is that, especially media studies, is we're getting more and more inter, you know, that interdisciplinary has become the 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 ba not unusual at all. So the ability to to put together 
topics like you did for this book. And I've seen this with other authors, too, where you've, people have been able to put together um, interesting looks uh, in a variety of ways, particularly things like this, where there is a, an intersect between um, something that is affects everyone and yeah. then by pointing out some aspects related, in this case, to, to film. So the book, you basically talk about four different movies. Obviously, you, you talk about more than them, but you build it around four movies, uh-huh. Gone with the Wind, Singing in the Rain, Twister, and Avatar. And you make different points related, use each one as a focus. Uh, did where, where did you come up with, I mean, were these four films, did they pretty much, uh, were obvious to you, or did it take you a while to decide what you wanted to or how you wanted to structure and, and discuss each individual topic? Uh, great, uh, great question. Um, the project really started off with Singing in the Rain. Um, I was getting interested in the intersection between film and media, film and media or, or, or screen culture. I just, I, anything from film, television, online content, video and stuff, saying all those things, I just refer to it as screen culture because it's culture that we watch on screens. Um, the connection between that and the environment, uh, was just sort of marinating and I was teaching an intro to film class and, and teach singing in the rain and And there's this amazing scene in singing in the rain where, um, Gene Kelly and, um, um, Debbie Reynolds, uh, who are the romantic protagonists of the film are on a sound stage and he can't confess his feelings for her unless it's this artificial setting that's created, uh, in the Hollywood magic format. And so he turns on all of these artificial light and an artificial breeze. And he's saying out loud, like that he is creating this natural setting with all of this artifice and even makes a a comment about as he throws these lights on 500,000 kilowatts of stardust. Um, And it really just like, it was this amazing lightning bolt in my brain when I watched it have, you know, under the influence of, of having read a lot and been thinking and reflecting on this connection and the relationship. Um, and so singing in the rain sort of logically presented itself. And then suddenly I viewed the film, not as a film, even necessarily about Hollywood, but as a film about water, uh, and, and water use, uh, either as it's used poetically in the song, as it's used choreographically in the sidewalk dancing scene, as it was used, uh, for marketing the film, et cetera. Um, but also the way in which no one discusses, I mean, this is a film that's been written about, you know, so, so much it's covered in, in such excess, but no one's really, no one's ever talked about the natural resources that were used, the amount of water that was necessary in order to, to choreograph and stage the scene. Um, and so then I went, uh, into the, um, I think it was the, the freed collection at USC, uh, had a bunch of background materials, uh, assistant director reports. And so it was this really fun investigatory work uh, into the the making of the memos for, the marketing for, the reviews of the film, all of this uh, just to try to understand ways in which resource use uh, and representation of natural elements was functional either explicitly or implicitly or by code um, in the film's making. And so from then I realized that what I was doing was actually a sort of environmental counter narrative or alternative history of Hollywood. Um, and 
as such, I wanted to look at it on a much wider historical scale, but also really just use the films as case studies that were also kind of foils for exploring larger issues of the environmental um, the environmental ramifications, both in terms of use and waste production, pollution production, as well as in shaping popular social perceptions of the environment and our ideological connections to the natural world. Um, and so it ended up being, for, I ended up deciding to frame it according to the, to the elements, to four elements, and each element had a, a case study. Um, so Singing in the Rain just sort of presented itself. Uh, Gone with the Wind, almost similarly, I think that I was, uh, I, I was just interested, I was thinking about fire. I was thinking of, of the role that fire plays in the spectacle of destruction that's so central to Hollywood excess uh, and popularity. And the the burning of Atlanta sequence just made perfect sense. And then uh, wind sort of led um, logically to Twister, but also because Twister is seen historically as this this fulcrum uh, in the historical shift from analog filmmaking to digital filmmaking practices. And then Avatar was just sort of the logical pinnacle of uh, so-called self self uh, advertised fully digital filmmaking. Um, and so in a way, they, they were logical, historical go-tos. In a way, they, they worked into this arbitrary framework and structure, uh, the elemental uh, structure for the book. Um, but also, they helped to lay out a very long historical perspective um, of, of Hollywood's connection to the environment. As a matter of fact, if you look at them, you've got them in chronological order. I do, uh, yeah. In that sense, it, it makes it, it gives a little bit more uh, context to it. Let's go back to Gone with the Wind because obviously, um, fire. We're talking about the burning of Atlanta scene in in the film and and the spectacle of it. And of course, most blockbusters. I I was thinking about this before we started talking. I says I can't think of a blockbuster these days that doesn't include explosions, fires, all oh, kinds yeah. of environmental issues and yet um that's nothing new obviously and and gone with the wind uh is no exception to that uh what what brought out what what specifically related to gone with the wind and in the environmental impact of 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 the actual burning uh led you to feel like this was a good place to start um, I, you know, I actually didn't start there. I started with Singing in the Rain right. and then ended up working backwards in the research. But the book, it does, um, it did make sense just a structural chronologically, I guess, mo- mostly for reader accessibility. Um, but also, I've never, I never wrote on Hollywood before this. Um, and it was interesting to suddenly shift gears in my scholarship and my research and, and writing and just sort of outlook on visual culture and suddenly look at really mainstream Hollywood practices to look at it historically, to look at production cultures, stuff like that. Uh, so it was all very, it was new and exciting. I mean, by new, I mean, 10 years ago to me, right. uh, you know, when all this began, um, gone with the wind. I, I is, is viewed by so many and is presented in so many Hollywood histories as, sort of the first major blockbuster spectacle, either that or, or maybe Birth of a Nation. Um, but even uh, Birth of a Nation in the teens, 
the Hollywood studio system hadn't crystallized yet. The feature length film hadn't become the standard. Um, and so I think Gone with the Wind was really this major benchmark, uh, both in terms of how films are made um, and how authorial power works in Hollywood, but also in terms of the actual scale of spectacle. Um, and this is clear is clearly intentional uh, looking back at all of Selznick's memos. And Selznick was, you know, this egomaniacal, perfect product of, of Hollywood. Um, it's almost like he's almost the perfect product of Hollywood, the way that uh, Donald Trump is like the perfect product of American hypercapitalism and reality television. Um, and as such, it, it, it worked as this perfect focal point for the origin of a, of a, of a larger system of values that emanates from Hollywood, but's connected to larger aspects of American capitalism, industry, and ideology um, that really relies on the destruction or use or consumption of, of the real, um, of real objects and real resources in order to produce a visual or a sensory spectacle for people to watch on screen. And Gone with the Wind does this so literally um, by, by lighting things on fire in order to, for us to enjoy the spectacle of destruction and fire on a screen. But it's also actually a really weird uh, proto-sustainability uh, film because Selznick burned all of these old sets from his back lot in order to produce the fire I mean, he piped in tons of gas and all kinds of other stuff, but, um, you know, there, there's a lot of talk of green filmmaking initiatives and sustainable media production now. Um, so, so Call of the Wind was an early, early recycling project, I guess you could say. Um, but it really is just in terms of the book making a sort of intervention in Hollywood history and scholarship, Gone with the Wind was the perfect place to start because it is somewhat by consensus understood as the the launch pad for blockbuster Hollywood the way we know it today and the way it's dominated pop culture for almost a century. Yeah, it's interest what what is funny because you talk about they he uh, burned down recite old sets and given that this was <laughs> unlike some films, this was literally one of the first scenes in the film and first filmed scenes was the burning of Atlanta. It was the uh, first. It was the first thing filmed for the film. So I've heard of other movies where they burn things down at the end that they can then use. Uh, Apocalypse Now, for example, the extra end title credits that they didn't use with the burning of stuff was just literally Coppola saying, "We got to get rid of this stuff, so let's just burn it down." Um, but uh, in this case, uh, he started the film by burning down the old sets, and what memory serves, it included the King Kong set. Um, it was King of Kings. Oh, King of Kings. Sorry. Yeah. There was a king in there somewhere. I think it was both, actually. It was oh, both okay. King and King of Kings. Um, yeah, so it was the first day. It was the very first thing they shot. He got all of the Technicolor cameras that were available in Hollywood, all seven of them, um, and invited Vivian Lee, who hadn't actually been signed yet, to play Scarlett O'Hara, to come. And, and he brought her to the set in order to to wow her with this extravagant act of destruction. 
um, and then just torched everything and, and burnt it down. And they shot until, you know, at like all of the, it, it is it, like singing in the rain. It's one of these films that is just, you know, almost drowned in Hollywood legend and lore. And, you know, they shot in the very last frame caught the last burning ember or whatever they, you know, mm-hmm. however they want to romanticize it. But, uh, yeah, no, it was, uh, it was quite the way to kick off a film shoot for sure. But it also, you know, part of it was also that it, he burned everything in their back lot to make room for these massive sets that had to be built for Gone with the Wind. So, of course, uh, using that as an example of a blockbuster with uh, a lot of bombast, obviously, going forward, they this has become the norm almost, especially for, for films that are considered to be, you know, the, the basic Hollywood film these days. It's almost a given it's got to include uh, this kind of... of uh, Bombat, and I've used that word again, but I mean like explosions and and, and fire and things like that. So, uh, and even though we're seeing more digital aspects, some of these are being done digitally now. Uh, we're still seeing quite a bit of actual destruction going on in Hollywood sets. Oh yeah, absolutely. And part of you know part of why I God the Wind serves as such a good um, starting place for the book too is that. You know, the book is not just about Hollywood, but it's about American society uh, and cultural values on a much larger level. I refer to it in the book as a sociocultural contract, sort of taking Rousseau's notion of the social contract and extending it to the way that we as audiences are implicit in the practices and the values expressed um, through our, our popular culture, in this case, film culture. Um, and, you know, it's not just that we that films are expected to have explosions or this sensory overload of of sight and sound but they are also expected to be excessive and to not care you know to not um to 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 spare no penny and to spare no piece of natural resource in the production of this spectacle and that's what if you look at like the you know, the one-off $10,000 dresses or whatever at the Academy Awards or or the the excess, excesses that go with Hollywood as a culture, you know, this is what we as, as a society actually value from that industry and have come to expect and turn to it for. And this was, you know, repeated. So Gone with the Wind marketed itself very much on this as being – the the most extravagant, the most costly, burning the most stuff, the most spectacle ever. I mean, this is literally how its marketing uh, tools advertised it. And this was repeated again, you know, some 60 years later uh, with Titanic. Um, when James Cameron was making Titanic, the on, you know, they, the buildup to the film's release was that it was this huge budget film that went way over budget, hundreds of millions of dollars over a hundreds of millions of dollars budget. And this wasn't apologetic and it wasn't a critique and variety and all the Hollywood magazines published it as this sort of implicit celebration of this complete disregard for any type of efficiency or, or, or material limitations. And that was, you know, it was rewarded. It was, Box hugely successful at the box office won some you know whatever eleven or thirteen Oscars. Um, this is what 
this is what Hollywood does, and this is what we we want from it, and this is what we pay it to do. We buy tickets right. to have it do, and so on a much larger level, you know, it's not just Hollywood's fault for blowing stuff up. It's a a circulation um, or a circuit between a cultural value system and a popular culture industry. I know. Um, I used to live in Cleveland. In fact, I spent most of my life in Cleveland, and we've had a number of films filmed there, obviously. But recently, Marvel has chosen has used Cleveland for a variety of the the films that they've done. And including, I still remember when they were filming the Avengers in Cleveland, the first Avengers movie, and of course, watching the film and recognizing the sets and and looking and saying, okay, well, how much of this is digital and how much did they actually blow up on the set? I mean, um, I remember walking around the area. Of course, the way the set was set up, you couldn't see anything. They had major uh, things all around it so you couldn't really get in there but stuff like that yeah but i'm assuming that during the the actual filming it had to have gotten between uh the amount of real explosions that they obviously did and the noise and everything i don't i I don't know about people who were actually working in that area at the time what it was like but uh um i and there's a couple other ones which were the same thing i look and i know the areas and i said okay what kind of what were there um uh, consequences of, of what they did. I know Hollywood always says we always want to make sure we put everything back the way we left yeah. it, but you always worry: can you really do that? Yeah, and they 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 actually do a pretty good job of it because they want to be able to come back and film at these places, especially incentivized spots um, like Cleveland, uh, Atlanta. You know, Georgia has a big incentive still. New Orleans had one. Detroit had one when I first moved to Michigan when I uh, I started at, at Oakland University and it was really interesting to be there and it's like Cleveland I think that there's a propensity in these in in Rust Belt cities that have you know were far more central to American manufacturing the economy and therefore far more populous uh, in in the mid century and early twentieth century. But have since very much evacuated their their inner city or their downtown areas. That's definitely how Detroit is, and it's just left a lot of sort of an industrial rubble. And it serves the perfect backdrop for these futuristic dystopian action films. And so things like Transformers and uh, Batman versus Superman were filmed there. But it also means that these productions can just go in and literally just blow stuff up because they're um, abandoned parking lots or something like that. And it's crazy. The, 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 I don't even know what to call it other than hubris, but it's like the, the, the leisurely way in which, uh, Hollywood productions just broke, blow up reality, um, in order to provide this one visual effect on screen is an aspect of the, that, that set of cultural values that, that, that just blows my mind. And it is like increasingly, they're doing CGI stuff, yeah, but that's just, I mean, all films are CGI to a degree now because everything is going to be edited, um, you know, non-linearly uh, in a computer and everything's touched up and color corrected and things like that and things are added and things are subtracted. But if it was really all done in that digitally, they wouldn't need incentivized cities to go film in. They wouldn't need lots. They wouldn't need sets. 
So I think there's a there's a good amount of and I'll, I'll, you know, a, a, probably the second half of my book, and I would say the actual main focus of the book is that the shift to digital production is not immaterial. It's not cleaner. It's just create part of a much larger global network of resource use, waste production, and sort of uh, global imperialism that includes the mining of, uh, of precious metals that go into our, our screening devices and the off outsourcing of digital waste uh, to, to non-Western countries where it ends up leading to toxicity and groundwater and things like that. I've noticed that some films, and I tend to read credits to the end and does for a variety of reasons, but they're starting to put the occasional film now has a uh, a little disclaimer, not a disclaimer. At the end, they mention about how they're being trying to be environmentally conscious with them, the way they're making their films, oh, yeah. and, and but yet you've got to sit there and watch it and said you're not completely sure how they can do that. No, there's a, you know, a lot of them, I think the day after tomorrow is the first one that did this and they're, they're using this carbon neutral stamp, um, which for the most part with major blockbusters uh, just means that they are budgeting to buy carbon offsets and then they just proceed with business as usual. Um, I, I was actually grilling a, an environmental filmmaker about uh, making films about the environment, uh, Luis Ahoyos, while he was shooting Racing Extinction um, after... Uh, he, he came to my university um, to talk about the cove and I was asking him what it really means for a film to say it's carbon neutral and he made this great reference he he likened it to buying the buying of indulgences um, in the Catholic Church which for many centuries was basically just meant that you can sin all you want and then you just pay money to get a better place in heaven um, and that's what these these big productions are doing now that doesn't mean uh, so. I actually, you know, I had a I made a joke about this to a friend today that um, it is you know it's replaced the no animals were harmed in the making of this film um, not uh, conscientious filmmaking at the in the final credits of films and it basically just means that uh, the the next mass extinction was not majorly accelerated by the making of this film. Um, but there are also, you know, there are also very sustainable methods. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, uh, part of a big research grant, uh, with Piatari Kappa at the University of Warwick in the UK. Um, and we got an HRC grant from, from England in order to work on and, and to help facilitate the development of green media production initiatives and in the process have started to build a network and realize that there are a really, you know, a big amount, a great um, a number of nonprofits and media production groups that are trying to push these initiatives and that increasingly they're building uh, national industries are building towards trying to implement um, a sort of uh, best practices protocol and things like that, which is, you know, so it, it's it's shifting a bit. Um, Hollywood, of course, the U.S. is, is less is, is far more privatized, is far more profit-driven and less regulated. Um, but Hollywood itself is very, very aware of the importance of public image construction 
and has rebranded itself as as green in many ways that are mostly just like you know superficial greenwashing but also i think that they're realizing that it is in the best interest of cost efficient production um to to be sustainable and so even you know major tech companies like apple are starting to uh build server uh, sorry solar farms around their server farms so that the the server um 24/7 upkeep of our digital existence is going to be increasingly powered at least by renewable energy so you know there are i think there are just as we see this gradual swell in public awareness uh and activism and and protest around business as usual and its impact on the environment and the consequences of climate change i do think that media industries are going to be part of that shift two of the three just about every blockbuster movie there's two or three at the end one is for animals one is for as we've talked about uh with uh uh, environment, and then the other one is smoking. You know, no tobacco. Oh uh, right, yeah, I didn't. I haven't noticed that one. That's good. Yeah, well, it's 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 become those are the the ones that you see the most often. Let's move on to Twister though, because we've been talking, we've been going in towards this digital aspect of things, and and I think you point that out well. Is that Twister? No question, was one of the first. Well, I don't know. You can tell better about the history part of it, but definitely depended a great deal on digital special effects to produce what it uh, what it wanted to show while it was also talking about the whole idea of weather as part of the environment um yeah twister is this fascinating film that in a way uh you know tries to acknowledge the importance of respecting non-human nature and uh the the power of nature um but it also casts nature as the villain that needs to be controlled by human science and technology and so it's this total techno fetishization uh, uh, about how we can use technology in order to harness and and to understand and by understanding to master um this otherwise, you know, sublime and uncontrollable natural force, which is actually a corollary for the film's um, marketing of CGI graphics and the new power that this actually gives directors and, you know, visionary directors like like Roland Emmerich and James Cameron, who become these sort of uh, mirrored... Um, techno geniuses and special effects geniuses that's become a new form of of celebrity auteur uh narrative uh and for hollywood directors um now yeah twister uh was one of the first films to take its editing completely um to do its editing completely digitally uh it's also weirdly connected to just the general infrastructure of of digital film culture in that I think it was like the first film to be released on DVD. It was also the least film, not the, sorry, least the last film to be released on HD DVD after <laughs> Blu-ray won out in that sort of very short battle for control of high def. Um, yeah. I remember uh, when, when DVDs first came out, um, Warner brothers was one of the major studios to, to, uh, 
championed the cause, and so they had their the first DVD. And I remember that's totally the first DVDs to come out were all you know there was a six or seven Warner Brothers yep. films, and and Twister was one of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, and there, there's so many different ways in which that film, which I'm, you know, I it's not necessarily an amazing film, and it didn't exactly like rock the the history of cinema in certain ways, the way that these others are seen as, you know, masterpieces of, of, of film history. Um, but it was really, really important in the, uh, in the production culture history of Hollywood and its shift to digital filmmaking. What's ironic is that despite uh, doing, you know, despite claiming to go digital, uh, the film also used, you know, used analog filmmaking. It used a crazy amount of cameras. Insane amounts of, of footage was shot for it to the point where they couldn't even watch the rushes on a daily basis. Um, and they also had to use new lighting, to, like actually provide new lights, use more energy, use more infrastructure, use more material uh, resources in order to light it so as to uh, provide for the addition of CGI special effects into the analog image afterwards. Um, so not only was it like not more efficient or more uh, resource friendly, it was far more so. Like it was, it, it used far more resources. And this is the same thing with Avatar, which branded itself as the first fully digital film. It wasn't fully digital at all. They had real sound stages, they made real costumes that were supposed to be based on from this um, sort of pseudo anthropological uh, vantage point on how the Navi people who lived in this particular ecosystem, what their clothes would be made out of. And then they made these costumes so that the CGI artist would have something to base their animation on. Um, so there's basically, instead of being, you know, less resource intensive, it's doubly resource intensive. And particularly when you talk about, um, a film where like Twister, where the amount of footage they actually filmed, what do you do with all that? Well, first off, you have to get the, the, the physical films and that, you know, the, the physical material ahead of time, and then you have to do something with it afterwards. And, uh, Something like that. You, know, there, you think about that because there are a number of films that the the directors and went crazy with the amount of footage they were they were taking, and we've seen examples of that over time. Some of which have actually bankrupted studios, like uh, like um, um, Heaven's Gate, where part of the it's issue was just about, it's still talked about in the industry from this like point of of it's like they, it's a thing to brag about. And so, but so yeah, I could see where. That you know, you don't even think about that when you watch the film, but like you point out, that's where you have to think of the environmental part because uh, you have to get that material and film, uh, you know, actual film. Even though nowadays we're getting farther far, you know, most major films have gotten away from, or many, they don't use film anymore. So you know, everything is digital at least as far as the recording and everything. But uh, um, something like that, you just have to think to yourself, and you mentioned this with Avatar, what is the impact of the materials you are still using? Yeah, absolutely. And this is, this is how I think that you know, Hollywood is playing into 
this larger uh, sleight of hand that smart technology industries have totally succeeded in, in fooling us with the illusion that because all of the fiber optic cables are hidden at the bottom of an ocean and the satellites are out of sight, you know, circling our planet, um, and all of the server farms are in Iceland or somewhere where we can't see them, that this digital culture, this world we live in now is immaterial. Um, but it's not. It's extremely material. And so the preservation of, of analog film, which itself has all kinds of crazy, like, chemical complexities and coolant and resource demands is now slowly being phased into the seemingly infinite and eternal um, archiving of, of digital information. Um, but it is, you know, it's not eternal and it's not infinite and it is incredibly energy dependent and, you know, uh, dependent on farming of, of precious metals and infrastructure manufacturing, just so much. There's, there's so much involved in it that is, has nothing to do with just the production of the films, as you were saying, you know? And of course now we're seeing more and more, um, projects all, you know, with very good reasons of digitizing material, especially material that is, that is basically disintegrating, and so even though, um, so there's a new cost or a new thing to consider uh, for something that may not, uh, that have, may have been very old, but uh, now has a, a new environmental cost to it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we, and, you know, the, the, the objects that we use for this, whether it's the cameras that they're shot on or the phones that we watch them on or whatever, all have this, you know, built in uh, obsolescence. And our phones are made to have to be upgraded to the newest, best thing. But I was talking to a filmmaker friend the other day, and, and he shoots on digital. And I was asking if, you know, he used 4K or, or high def. And he's like, no, the norm now is 10K. And this just, like, blows my mind, the fact that, like, the norms of the standards of definition and the technology that we use on every end of this cultural uh, um aspect of our existence is constantly changing, updating, and requiring new objects. I know Blu-ray took a little while to um, take hold, but it did. Uh, the one bigger difference nowadays, and this is, goes back to your point about new ways of having to store, is that digital, has, um, digital uh, replay has become more important than physical media. Um, and of course we still talk about the same issues, but, um, as you point out, it, you know, you come out with a new format. That means people have to buy new televisions, which means they have to get rid of the old ones, which causes yep. environmental issues. Same way with computers. And like you point out with, with devices, uh, as we come up with new ways to, uh, view things or to, to access, uh, the hardware has to keep up with the software. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not, you know, as I was talking to my students about this yesterday, because especially, you know, in the U.S., but this is, it, it's really global, the degree to which people have cell phones now. Um, and it's not just so that people can send pictures to each other or look at funny memes or 
online shop or whatever it is, like the things that we can we can argue or trivial about it, it is absolutely, and it's not even an issue of like social capital and peer pressure to stay up to date with the cool stuff. It is literally increasingly a requisite for jobs, for education, and for all of these things that are just normalizing or normativizing the the constant use and presence of these devices, um, which is hugely problematic. Right, because uh, like you just you just said it. I mean, it used to be a luxury, and now it's becoming a necessity. And um, you know, just the environmental impact of all the devices that we currently have, as well as the devices which we've since gotten rid of, and did, and even though companies like Apple, I know, and other companies try to. Uh, you know, work out ways to try to get materials back so they can be recycled, the average person probably isn't taking advantage of that. Uh, no. And well, they also, not only are they not taking advantage of it, but they don't have access to it. It's actually really hard to get laptops recycled, mm. um, or, or devices recycled. And, you know, most of it is, is then most people also don't know that it's then shipped abroad where either, um, Personal information can actually be hacked out of out of memory, uh, or and it's boiled down in these really unsafe conditions that are highly carcinogenic in these villages in in India and and Kenya and China and um, it's part of this much larger problem of you know neoliberal twenty first century digital colonialism. Um, but you're I mean it's true that you know people can't do it. It's not just that they don't, it's that they really just have very, very few opportunities or or means to to live this digital life in a environment an environmentally conscientious way. Wanted to talk a little bit about Avatar one aspect of Avatar, we've been mentioning it off and on, but one of the things you talk about in, in with Avatar as an example is how particularly how certain people uh, not certain, you know, people, especially in the, the Hollywood people that want to show that they are environmentally conscious and yet what kind of probable backlash, not backlash, but, you know, double-edged sword there is for something like that where um, what you're doing is what you're doing really showing environmental consciousness. Sure, sure. Um and I love, I mean, like uh, Sohoyos in, in Racing Extinction, there's a moment where he even says to the camera that the worst thing a person, a filmmaker can do for the environment is to make a film about the environment. Um, and, you know, I don't think films are going to stop being made. Uh, I would love it if films were more creatively, uh, found more creative uses for recycled in footage and stuff like that. Um, but there is a huge paradox and it's it's not disconnected from the history of of Hollywood hypocrisy with relationship to you know social movements and and social progress or identity uh, rights and justice and and things like that. Um, there is a new brand of environmental celebrity that is connected to people like Leonardo DiCaprio, James Cameron. Some of it, I think, is um, is opportunism and 
some of it, I think some people actually really walk the walk. I think that you know, there's a sort of an old guard of people like Leo DiCaprio, who has the funding to make a documentary that's very much about Leo DiCaprio going around the world and re learning about climate change. And in some ways that might actually be educational for members of the audience who are seeing it because DiCaprio's in it and didn't know these things about climate change, but it's still business as usual. And I don't think it really pushes any sort of new agenda on, on more environmental living. On the other hand, someone like Matt Damon, who, who uses water.org uh, to go to African villages and help uh, fit them uh, and build infrastructure to get clean water, or someone like Shailene Woodley, who actually was, you know, went to Standing Rock got arrested and was savvy enough to understand how digital activism and social media works uh, to, to stream it uh, and to upload it onto Facebook. And um, I think that there is, you know, there's, it, it's, it, there's a wide range of how celebrities and how Hollywood individuals and even studios are approaching this. And some of it's definitely hypocritical. Some of it is simply paradoxical and, and some of it is really good. And, or, or, you know, is opting for actual change. Um, there was a recent story about uh, supposedly, I, mean, I think Leo DiCaprio is one of the people who was involved in it, about <clears throat> using a private plane to go to a environmental yeah. meeting. Mm-hmm. And there are all these, like, just sort of wink-wink, nudge-nudge jokes, Leo will be Leo and whatever. Um, I... If, if, you know, Leo DiCaprio makes so much money uh, to star in a film, James Cameron ha has made so much money off of the films he's made. If these people really wanted to change something, then they would take their hundreds of millions of dollars to Washington and they would lobby for regulation and industry change. And then they could actually do something. But I don't think that, you know, something like Avatar is is so ironically irresponsible, um, whether it's in its mode of, of production or in its, um, in the sort of white male savior hero narrative of, of, its, of its representational messages, um, but it bills itself as the great environmental text of, of the 21st century. And that's marketing, that's spin. So do you feel, I mean, I'm, we've obviously been focusing on Hollywood to a large extent because that's where the most obvious examples are and we can find them in all four of the films that you talked about were obviously very popular movies, but some of the other ones as well in the book. Do you feel there is a pos there are positives going on, real positives that, uh, that, that, are sh that could actually be helping things? Absolutely. And, you know, if Avatar makes 20 15-year-olds uh, care more about the environment and maybe makes them adopt certain daily behaviors slightly differently that are more sustainable or, or environmentally friendly, then it's still better than if it was just a film about explosions and riding winged creatures around, which it's also largely about. Um but I do, you know, as I was saying, I think that largely outside the U.S., uh, nations that have more government involvement and regulation and that are, you know, where the ideological values are more geared towards social justice 
and environmental ethics, um, I, I think that better things are happening uh, in the U.S. I've already mentioned a few, and there is like a a cottage industry of sustainable filmmaking that's popped up around this green turn, uh, both in American sort of pop debates, uh, but also in 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 Hollywood industry uh, for recycling sets, things like that, and that's great. You know that 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 is happening is a step in the right direction. Absolutely. Well, you've that definitely. Like I said before, the book really is great in this because it brings out a, a something that the average person probably doesn't even think about. Or, you know, with filmmaking, uh, there's different views, different ways that you can look at how films are made and their impact. And it's great to uh, to combine your two the two interests there with filmmaking. It it is interesting reading your introduction. It it, it almost there's times in it that I feel like you're at the beginning that you're saying. You know, you grudgingly watch movies, <laughs> but you're still going to keep watching movies. I do, yeah, you know, and I I constantly have to make jokes whenever I'm giving talks on this because I use uh, presentations on my laptop that are, you know, running through projectors. I use this technology, too. I don't think people are going to stop. I think that it, we can cut down on it, and people should maybe take a day out of the week where, where they have no screens, and people should... Uh, try to modulate their streaming sites like Hulu and Netflix uh, so that it doesn't turn like constantly just start new episodes and go on this endless loop. Um, I, there was a, <laughs> a, a review of my book in the LA review of books that uh, definitely acknowledges, or um, I would like to think endearingly jokes uh about a sense of moralism in my book. And I do think that there, and I'm sure this will come across in this podcast, it, it comes across whenever I talk about this because it's something I'm deeply passionate about and it's something that we need to be moralistic about, that we need to actually absorb into an ethical view of how we, we live our lives. Uh, that being said, like the book doesn't, and, and I'm not, you know, I can, I have particular issues with Avatar, for example, but this isn't all James Cameron's fault. It's not all anyone's fault. It's a, there's the book is not meant as an accusation or a rebuke of one particular person. It is an entire study of cultural history or of a particular cultural history and how it's connected to a larger web of of social values, norms, and practices. Well, at the very least, I think we can always say that virtually every major world problem if they could be solved easily they would have been solved by now <laughs> everything is there there's complexity in everything and there's so in everything and nothing i i really don't think that major issues of climate change and this type of major industrial practice are really going to be solved as long as people stand to benefit from business as usual, and money continues to have so much control in shaping policy and, and, and politics. Well, I hope you continue to have great success with the book, and I also am glad to hear that uh, even though you've only been in your new position barely a month, you've already been able to put together some new thoughts and ideas, and along with the other work you're doing, most people I talk to 
Uh, they write books, but they also have a lot of other stuff that's keeping them busy, and, and that's the important part to, to stay tied to, to what you're most interested in. Uh, yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate it. I, uh, I, I am very well supported here and I'm surrounded by a lot of really active and innovative and, uh, forward looking people. Um, and, you know, we were just talking about this in a department meeting the other day, and this is something that I like to think that the best, the best of academia, the best of, of scholars and researchers and writers comes at the intersection between producing, you know, uh, shifts in worldviews and ways we understand the world, but also in the applicability of, of what we research. You know, we shouldn't just exist on campuses and classrooms, but should also exist as parts of communities, both, both local and, and global, and work with other experts and practitioners um, in a variety of fields and a variety of aspects of, of social activity um, to, to just, you know, keep helping to uh, produce and to enact actual change. Well, thank you again for taking the time to talk to me about your book, uh, Hollywood's you. Dirtiest Secrets. Um, and um, as I say, it was very interesting, and I hope the – it was something new to think about for the listener or even if something they, they've thought about themselves to give them a new uh, way of, of considering some of these topics. Thanks for joining me, Hunter. Thank you, Joel. I really appreciate it. Thanks to Hunter Vaughn. I hope his book will give you something new to consider when watching movies. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books in Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.